Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for coming. You will, um, you will all be familiar with Churchill's old adage that democracy is the worst possible system of government except for all the alternatives. Uh, it is hard at a time when uh, Neil Hamilton becomes a Welsh Assembly member and when Donald Trump is even eligible for election in the United States of America to have total faith in the system. But if there is anyone who can explain it and give it the attention and exacting examination that it so keenly requires, it's our speaker today, who is, as you know, I think, uh, the most authoritative and entertaining classicist of his generation. He's been to Hay many times and has delivered many of the most exquisite ideas to us. He's here to talk about this book, Democracy, A Life, uh, which he's going to talk about about 40 minutes, then take questions, and has kindly agreed to sign copies afterwards in the bookstore. This, uh, as often before, is part of our collaboration with Cambridge University, to whom we are deeply grateful for sending us the wonderful Paul Cartledge. Please give him a very warm welcome. Too kind. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, can you hear me at the back? Okay, I can't see you, but you can hear me. Thanks to Peter, I'm in enormously indebted to him for organizing, for stage managing what surely is the world's greatest literary festival. And of course, it has many, many offshoots now. Um, some of you may have been to Caracas or uh, somewhere else in the, the universe. Peter is a, a globalist in the best possible sense. As he correctly said, this is part of the Cambridge series, and I am number 13, which is lucky for some, uh, and I hope it's going to be lucky for us. I also am indebted, uh, I actually started my academic life on the other side of that uh, Oxbridge divide uh, in Oxford. And the book that Peter showed you is in fact published by the Oxford University Press. So I thank all the members of the press who are responsible for it being published. That's to say my editor, who actually is based in New York, Stefan Vranka, and more, more close to home here, Kate, who has been uh, looking after all the Oxford Press authors, of which there are, I believe, three speaking at this very moment. So uh, there's a kind of rivalry, intense rivalry going on within the press. And uh, finally, and much, much the most important, uh, I have to thank you for coming along and, of course, maybe just postponing, but maybe possibly giving up your lunch. And um, I hope that after 35, 40 minutes, you won't think that uh, you have entirely wasted your time. But I am going to ask something in return, which is that we enter into a good ancient Greek word, a dialogos, a bit of a dialogue, a bit of a, an exchange and interchange. And, of course, if you want to do a Donald Trump rant, that's fine. But I probably won't respond to that. If, on the other hand, you wish to utter platonic certainties, then I probably won't respond to them 
either, and I'll explain why later on. So some medium term between Plato and Trump would be extremely, extremely acceptable. So you see on the screen, uh, I've said 10 things. Of course, you should know hundreds of things about democracy in ancient Greece. If anybody has the interest or the enthusiasm, I have a little handout in the old-fashioned sense of actually a bit of real paper, not on your smartphone, not merely an email attachment or a PDF. And I have a few copies of those which I will take over with me when I go to the bookshop afterwards. If you want a souvenir of what I have said, or if you want, in a way, a precy of at least one part of the book, then that might serve its turn. So, let's uh, hope that I can get the technology working all right. There is the cover of the book in its US guise. Now, normally, um, I'm being horribly crude here, and I apologize to any uh, American citizens, but normally speaking, uh, Hollywood, the kind of glitzier um, presentation, the Madison Avenue, approach to uh, getting something out there in order for something to be bought is more of an American thing. And so you would expect the cover of a book published in the States to be rather more gaudy than the book published with a dust jacket in Oxford, England. As it happens, the exact reverse was the case with this publication. So what you see is a 1853 German watercolour painting, remembering that Greece is the first country to revolt successfully, to gain its independence from the Ottoman Empire, only to have thrust upon it by what were then called the Great Powers, a constitution which had at its top a monarch, and not just any old monarch, but a Bavarian one called Otto, or in Greek, Othon. So he brought with him from southern Germany an entourage, including a beer maker, obviously, of Vintner. And this attracted also a number of Germans who were of an artistic bent. So this gentleman, 1853, imagined the scene a primary scene, absolutely basic to what constituted ancient Greek, specifically Athenian democracy. That is, in short, government by mass meeting, or as we would call it, using a Latin word, by referendum. Pericles wearing a helmet, which he's said to have done regularly, and there were jokes made about it, uh, even in peacetime, and it was alleged that his head was a peculiar shape, and therefore he wore a helmet to disguise the shape of his head, whether that's true or not. He's standing on what in Greek is a beamer, just anything you step upon is a beamer. In Latin, a rostrum, which was from the beaks of ships, which the Romans had defeated, and they brought the rostra, the beaks from the ships back, attached them to the speaker's podium, and that is a beamer in Greek. And he's holding forth with the Acropolis, the high city in the background, most famously, of course, the Parthenon. 
with which he was personally intimately connected in this sense that he sat on the committee, the, if you like, managing committee, which managed the finances, made sure that public money was spent wisely and well, and did so with immense efficiency because construction began in 447 BC, BCE, and was completed within 15 years, 432 BC or BCE, one of the most enormous uh, constructions then and indeed since. It's rivaled by one in Sicily, and if you've been to London recently, you'll know that there is an exhibition on at the BM where Sicily features. It's partly ancient Sicily, partly high medieval Sicily. You will also know that a certain number of marbles from that particular temple are extraordinarily still in the British Museum's Duveen Gallery. Despite the best efforts of such persons as myself, I confess I am the vice chairman of the British Committee for the Reunification of the Parthenon Marbles. And June the 7th of 2016, next week, is the exactly 200th anniversary of the date at which the then British government, 1816, agreed to pay Lord Elgin, the seventh Lord, 35,000 pounds, which is over millions today, to have them transferred from his personal possession to the possession of the British people in the British Museum. The joke, of course, of the British Museum is that it has in it just about everything except anything British. I mean, there is one or two uh, artifacts of the Roman British period and so on. There's medieval Saxon British, so, but typically speaking, it's uh, non-British material. At any rate, there's a little conference going on at the Senate House next uh, June the 7th, at which I, among others, will be speaking. And I'm going to be talking about museums as such. And some of you may be fans or you may just listen to In Our Time. And not this week, but last week, there was a program on the museum and our word museum comes from originally a shrine to the muses, and the most famous one of which was uh, Alexandria in uh, Egypt. But enough of all that. Let's go back to democracy. And the word democracy, our word, is of course a loan word. And what's the Bulgarian for democracy? Well, of course, it's democracy. I mean, it's one of those words that, regardless of its content, has transferred into uh, pretty much um, the whole of uh, the known world now in some form. But one of my key points, both in the book and in this talk, is to draw a very sharp line between any modern version of democracy, however effective or ineffective, and Peter brilliantly quoted the famous Churchillian uh, aphorism, no matter what form of democracy we have today or how effective you consider it to be, it is qualitatively different from anything that an ancient Greek would recognize as democracy in his, and of course it's, uh, I'll come back to this, uh, a typically a gendered thing, 
politics in the ancient world, indeed in the modern world, until the late 19th century, was typically exclusively in the public sphere a matter of men having power or, at any rate, participating in some way in the public political arena. So we move to the ancient term, and on the screen I've flashed up a very famous document. It belongs to the year 336 BC, BCE. The Athenians, and it's put up on the Athenian Acropolis. This is a stele with a document relief, and it depicts the patron goddess of democracy. It's not Athena up there. That is Democratia. And because the gender of the noun, Democratia, is feminine, of course she is a goddess, not a god. And she's portrayed in the act of crowning, that is putting a crown of olive leaves upon the head of a seated, probably middle-aged, though he's got quite good pecs. There is a sort of sense that he's slightly past his absolute athletic peak. And, of course, he's wearing a, a kind of kitone, which is a tunic, uh, around his uh, feet and a cloak over his shoulders. And he is Demos. He's Mr. People. However, and this is the first point about um, the problematizing of ancient democracy. Today, we probably think democracy, here the word most of us, unless we're fascists of some kind, totalitarians, or radical monarchists, for most of us, democracy is a good thing in principle because it recognizes something about us as individuals, that we are in principle equal, and that we are in principle free to express our view. And collectively, our view, as expressed individually, constitutes the people's will or wish. That's a theory. So it's a good thing. Suppose you're an ancient Greek, and you're living under a democratia. Well, the word is bipartite, combination of demos and kratos. I put that up on the uh, slide. Kratos is uh, unambiguously power, strength, grip. Those of you who are keen gamers perhaps have um, in your collection the God of War series, and you will know that there is a character in that called Kratos. Um, Kratos can be for good or ill, power, strength, grip. Demos, however, is ambiguous and therefore ambivalent. It can mean either the people, that's to say, think back to the Gettysburg Address of Abraham Lincoln, 1865, where he says that we, our ancestors, a hundred years ago, instituted democracy, that is, government of the people, by the people, for the people. Beautifully vague. Uh, if you happen to be black and you had been born in Africa and you had been enslaved and you were working on a sugar plantation or a rice plantation, you might not have the same sort of uplifting feeling swelling as you hear Lincoln's words as if you were a white male householding American. So people, at any rate, in that sense, is all the empowered people. 
in some sense of empowered. Suppose, on the other hand, you take the other view of demos, and, and this is where it becomes much more, what shall we say, fraught. Because demos in ancient Greek could also mean the masses, the majority. And sociologically speaking, the masses were typically not rich. That's why there were more of them than there were of the elite few. So suppose you are a member of the elite few. You're living in a democracy, which means, on the one hand, all of us people governing. On the other hand, government of the masses. Well, what is it that the masses have power over? Well, on the one hand, it's the public organs of government, so the ability to make political decisions. Another way of looking at it is that the masses have their grip on you, the few. So, in other words, if you are a member of the elite, better educated, more wealthy, perhaps even well-born, maybe even an aristocrat, then you might well think that you could translate democratia, and I'm now being very anachronistic, as the dictatorship of the proletariat. And that's the sort of charge, that's of course Lenin's phrase, Bolshevik revolution, uh, anti-capitalist, anti-aristocratic, the proletariat, borrows from Latin, but nevertheless, the sentiment is clear. It's not something that a, an old um, elite aristo or landowner would actually feel very pleased to hear. So this law of Eucrates, Eucrates proposed it in the assembly, the assembly passed it, it then became a law binding for the foreseeable future on all Athenians. He was just an ordinary guy, not any specially empowered individual. The herald would ask, who wishes to speak when a motion is put on the assembly's agenda, and whoever wished would leap up. And that was the motion. And it's basically because the Athenians recently had been defeated in a major battle by Philip of Maston and his son and crown prince Alexander who was going to become Alexander the Great, who founded Alexandria, where the museum that I mentioned was located. They are frightened that they're going to lose their democracy and that it's going to become either some form of oligarchy, that is, rule of a few, a few rich, a few well-born, a few anti-democrats, or they're afraid there's even going to be direct rule by a monarch which, of course, Philip was, a hereditary, autocratic, non-responsible monarch. So, I move on. I mentioned Kratos. Those of you who know your Aeschylus will know that one of the seven, only seven out of about 80-plus that he actually wrote and had performed, one of the seven is called Prometheus Bound. And like much of Aeschylus' work, it has many messages. It's not simply the action as portrayed that is the play. There are also undercurrents of both intellectual and more practically political issues at stake, which the audience, an ordinary cross-section of Athenian people, up to 17,000. Can you imagine if we go to the Albert Hall, it's 6,000. Well, this is almost three times as out in the open air in 
uh, end of March, beginning of April, that sort of time, vulnerable to the weather. But at any rate, everybody can see everybody else in the open air. And at the end of the play performance, where plays are done in competition, there's actually a vote, very democratic. Well, in the four, probably four uh, 60s, Aeschylus, or somebody perhaps very close to him, there's a bit of a debate about the authorship, possibly his son, wrote a play and had staged a play called Prometheus Bound. And Prometheus was a god. He was a god of an older generation from the gods who were ruling the Greek world, that is Zeus's Olympian gods. And Prometheus was a very brave god because he took on Zeus. And he took Zeus on specifically over the issue of how nice should the gods be to poor mortal human beings, immeasurably feebler than any god. Uh, mortal meaning they die, whereas gods by definition live forever. And the, well, one way of looking at the ancient Greeks' gods is to see them as larger Greeks. So as they represented them, they represented them in human form, anthropomorphic, but on a gigantically bigger scale. So we have a clash of the, well, it's not titans, but Prometheus was a titan, Zeus was not. His dad was, and Prometheus takes on Zeus, and Zeus wishes to deprive us humans of fire. And without fire, we can't cook, we can't use light, we can't keep warm in the winter, we probably starve and die. And that, apparently, is what Zeus wanted. And Prometheus steals fire, he hides it in a fennel stalk, brings it to humans, spread among humans, and humans survive. Zeus is not pleased, and he's going to take his revenge, and it's going to be a really nasty revenge, remembering that Prometheus cannot die. So he tortures him with an eternal punishment, has him strung up across a rock in the Caucasus, roughly where Georgia is uh, today, in the eastern end of the Black Sea, and every day, an eagle, and Zeus's symbol, the king of the birds, the eagle, comes down and eats Prometheus's liver. Overnight, this is miraculous, this is myth, that liver grows back again so that the eagle can eat it again the next day, ad nauseam, ad infinitum, until eventually he is um, rescued, actually, by Heracles, Hercules in Latin. Well, the reason I mention Aeschylus not just for the politics of the play, because Zeus is represented, in other words, as a kind of tyrant, a monarch who is not responsible, who is extremely unpleasant and authoritarian, everything, in other words, that are in a democracy no one should be. But he has two henchmen who carry out his wishes one of them is called force, uh, violence, which is sort of like a bad form of kratos. The other one is called kratos, and grip, force, power. So the point is that though kratos is unambiguous in its meaning, it can be used for good, but it can also be used for ill. So a democrat thinks kratos of the masses is good, an anti-democrat thinks that the power, the force of the 
ma terrible masses who are illiterate, ignorant, stupid, fickle, is a terrible thing. Well, I've used lots of words, haven't I, that have an ancient Greek derivation, but also, as we can see from the screen, a number of our political everyday vocabulary words have a Latin derivation. So I've just put some of these on the uh, handout here on the screen. I could have added kleptocracy, which is, I think, a rather nice neologism. But at any rate, politics comes from the Greek word polis, which means a city or citizen state. And I'm going to show you a map next, which illustrates the spread of the ancient Greek world of polis. Anarchy, archy bit as in monarchy, polyarchy, all sorts of words with archy means rule. So an, the bit at the beginning, is alpha privative, not rule, no rule, no governance, so anarchy. Aristocracy, well the crassy is the same as in democracy, but the aristoi are the best. And why are they the best? Well, because they think they are, because they're richer cleverer, more beautiful, all that. Monarchy, monos, soul, single, rule of one person. Tyranny, not a Greek word originally. So just as we've borrowed democracy from the ancient Greeks, the Greeks borrowed tyranny from a neighboring people, the Lydians. Oligarchy, I've mentioned them already. Oligoi, few, archi, uh, rule. Some of us think that though we technically formally live in a democracy today, actually, possibly, we live in a creeping crypto oligarchy. Um, discuss. Um, and one of the reasons why one might think that is the very next word, plutocracy. It is the fact that the more you spend on any political campaign in a Western country, the more likely you are to win whatever the campaign is, either for an issue uh, or for the election of a particular individual. And finally, democracy. Whereas from Latin, citizens, from kiwis, constitution, from constituo, literally standing, something that's placed together. Uh, empire, imperium, imperial, a very powerful form of power. Uh, liberal, from free, freedom, open. Uh, republic, the thing of the people, the nearest the Romans got to Greek democratia, which, by the way, typically they hated because they did not trust the masses to make directly decisions in what they took to be their own interests. The Romans had a very complicated system of dividing up the people, the populace, into various groupings, tribal or otherwise, which then voted as a group so that they never had simple plural majority voting. State, uh, from uh, Latin uh, status, it's the same uh, word, and power from potestas and people from, I've already said, populus. So, moving on, I mentioned that the Greeks did not live in a, a state in the way that modern Greece is a state. Um, by the way, the modern Greek word for state is kratos. So uh, Greece today is a kratos, the state of the Hellenic Republic. 
All around where you see the red is the pale of settlement. Plato wittily said, like frogs or ants around a pond, actually two ponds, the Mediterranean, then up into the Black Sea. And with Alexander's conquests going as far east as what's today Pakistan, Kashmir, you have Greeks settled all the way to that part of the Indian subcontinent. But I'm interested today, 5th century BC, 4th century BC, my point is that there were about a thousand different Greek communities, if you can imagine that. So if you ever read anyone saying Greek democracy, you've got to ask, okay, which city are you talking about in particular, when? And secondly, you've got to ask, what do you mean by democracy? Because there are various grades, Aristotle, who is our guide in this as in many other things. He wrote a work, or they were lecture notes, worked up into a written work called Politics, Matters Concerning the Polis. He distinguished four grades, four different subtypes of democratia, ranging from the most extreme to the most moderate. And the most moderate, the least democratic, if you like, was the most like the most moderate form of oligarchy. He saw it as a kind of continuum from on the left, extreme democracy, on the right, extreme oligarchy. And Athens, if I can get this thing to work, is, of course... Ah, well, it doesn't matter, but um, it's not very clearly marked on that map. But most of what I'm now going to say in my remaining 10, 15 minutes is going to be about Athens, which invented not just the word, but also the thing, democracy, and which developed it. Athens has three or four different democracies over nearly a 200-year period, between about 500 BC and about 320 BC. And this is not a simple thing at all. One has to be extremely careful about discriminating. So, I mentioned Plato, Platon, his name possibly was a nickname. His real name might well have been something else. Platus means broad, and one thought, one theory is that he got a nickname because he was a rather broad figure, and he, he wrestled in his youth. Wrestling was considered an upper-class thing to do then, uh, as it probably isn't today. Opposite him, uh, Pericles, with his helmet. Now, Plato was one of those who believed that only a very, very few elite, that is intellectually elite individuals, interestingly, female as well as men, uh, he was to that extent untypical that he believed some women were the intellectual equals of some men. Only they should be entrusted with the delicate business of running a polis. And so he takes that through his mouthpiece, Socrates, in the Republic to the ultimate extreme of having what we call familiarly philosopher kings. Now, of course, if you've got kings in the plural, these aren't monarchs, but they are autocrats. They're above and beyond ordinary popular control. They're not responsible. At any rate, he, well, I'm going to be a bit um, brutal. I think he probably hated the form of political rule that he lived in for most of his uh, 
very long life. He lived for over 80 years. And he experienced um, revolution, major defeat in battle, and he desperately wanted to cure what he considered to be the ills. He used a medical metaphor of cities, and he saw the only possible cure for the, well, ills such as, well, revolution, um, expropriation of property by masses uh, from the few, and political assassinations, and so on and so on. He saw as the only remedy for that the somehow imposition of a very rigid authoritarian intellectualist regime of philosopher, that is, who believed in Plato's philosophical nostrums, uh, philosopher kings. Pericles, on the other hand, though himself like Plato from the old Athenian aristocracy, so one of the aristoi, the best in a sociological sense, identified wholly with the demos in the sense of the masses, to such an extent that he even proposed and got past legislation which actually made Athens more democratic in a number of ways which uh, I shan't go into, but do follow up by having a look in my book if you wish. So here are polar opposites. Democracy was not something the Athenians, you could say, automatically knew what it was and agreed on it and it was not a problem. It was. And debate, dialogue is of the essence of what it was to be an ancient Athenian citizen in the theatre, in the assembly, but also, and I'm going to come on to this, in the law courts. We first learn what arguments might be put forward in favor of different political regimes in the histories of my friend on the right in this double herm. The guy on the left is Thucydides, on the right is Herodotus. And Herodotus uh, imagines, and I have to say it is wholly uh, false as historical fact, uh, a famous debate taking place in the Persian Empire. Persia is, of course, the great other. It's the great sort of threat to what the Greeks counted as the good life, the only possible life, the political life. Persians were, for them, representatives of autocracy, of not republican, as we would say, uh, government. And uh, in Herodotus's Persian debate, he imagines three noble Persians. This is a situation immediately before they have overthrown a usurper. So it's something like the Putney debates in 1647, October, November. I come from Putney myself in St. Mary's Church, presided over by Oliver Cromwell. They're all absolutely clear, the new model army, this is the civil war, they're going to get rid of the monarchy and very likely going to have to actually execute Charles. What the debate's about is what are we going to replace it with? So the three Persians, allegedly, who are debating in Herodotus, they're all agreed, we've got to get rid of the usurper. But what are we going to replace the usurper with? What kind of regime is going to run the Persian Empire? Well, traditionally, historically, there was absolutely no argument it was going to be, as it had been, an autocratic monarchy. But Herodotus imagines them as sort of Greeks. 
And the first speaker speaks up for a form of uh, open, egalitarian political rule, which is not a million miles away from the sort of democracy that existed in Athens in the middle of the 5th century when Herodotus is writing, and that existed in a number of other cities then. Against him, he has two rivals, this Persian speaker. One speaks up for aristocracy. Well, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? The best should rule, quite obviously. Ah, but now my next uh, speaker, and he's on the left of your slide. He's got one foot on a defeated and bound enemy, and all of them in front are, you notice, with their hands behind their back. They're chained captives. They're a bunch of kings, uh, allegedly, that the man on the left, Darius, Darius, Darius I, has conquered. And in historical fact, Darius it was indeed who restored order and legitimacy to the Persian Empire after the usurpation. Well, in the debate in Herodotus, of course, he is made to be the spokesman for legitimate hereditary monarchy, uh, the rule of the one best man. You see, because the problem with having more than one best man is that they disagree. And so you've got the potential for instability. Now, an Athenian or Greek Democrat would say, but that's the whole point. You thrash it out. You hold your views, strongly, weakly, strong or weak views, and then you have a vote. That's what the will of the people is. That would be anathema, good Greek word, uh, to a Persian. <coughs> so... Back to the Athenian democracy. We've looked at the assembly. I should add that in the period in the 4th century BC, time of the law of Eucrates, the assembly met every nine days. Every item on the agenda on which there was a vote taken would register the decision, the vote of the people. That was what the Athenians decided would be the policy of the state, either a general issue or a particular issue. So they had, as it were, a referendum every nine days, if you can imagine that. 6,000 plus trooping up onto the Penix Hill just below the Acropolis, open air, listening to discussion, argument, and then voting. Suppose the vote was taken to make a law on impiety. What counts as being disrespectful to the gods and goddesses of the Athenian polis? And I choose that because perhaps the most famous political trial, and the Athenians didn't distinguish between trials that were and were not political. In principle, all trials, if they were public, were political. Uh, in 399 BC, Socrates, that's the real Socrates, not Plato's Socrates, was put on trial for impiety, not recognizing, not properly worshipping the gods and goddesses whom the city of Athens recognizes and worships. Secondarily, he was accused of, in effect, a kind of treason 
for corrupting the young, meaning that was code for particular young men who then went on to espouse anti-democratic opinions and even to revolt, to rebel, even to bring in the Spartans and therefore overthrow the democracy, which had indeed happened in 404 BC. Well, suppose you were enrolled as one of the panel of jurors. Once a year, there'd be a call. Who wishes to serve as a juror for the next year? It's paid enough that if you are called, you would be compensated sufficiently with a payment so that you weren't out of pocket from not working that day. Courts met on roughly every other day in the year on average, so between 150 and 200 days. You were issued when you went on the panel with a bronze, you can see at the bottom, token. And you roll up, you show your token because you therefore are on the panel. You're given then, when you're assigned to your court, the ballots for either guilty or not guilty. And they're stamped with a, a legend which says, public vote, vote of the people, dimosia psyphos. And our word psyphology comes from the ancient Greek word psyphos, originally a pebble. And so, since that was a kind of voting token originally, it becomes used generically to mean any voting token. Actually, um, bronze and actually quite carefully made. And so, this is just as much being democratic, doing democracy, to sit in a law court to judge whether or not Socrates was guilty as charged of impiety and treason as it was to go to the assembly and vote on the law of Eucrates. I'm coming towards the end, and now something completely different, as it were. I've already dealt with Persia to some degree, and that's very different. But the ancient Greek world, why it's very important not to say that the Greeks did this, that, or the other, as if all of them always did pretty much the same things, is to recognize that there was a state, a city, polis, which is almost at the opposite possible end of any spectrum you care to think of from Athens. Athens was untypical. It was extreme of its kind. Well, at the other extreme was an extreme of its kind, and this is Sparta. Sparta, unlike pretty much every other Greek city, retained... Um, kings, <coughs> not one, in other words, not monarchs, but diarchs, two kings at once from two different families, two different um, patri lines, and succession, accession was by heredity. The other thing, well, I mean, there are many other things, but one of the most, other, most striking other things about Sparta is the role, status, and public profile of the female half of the population. They were treated from birth much more like the boys than was the case in any other Greek city. As adults, they could own property in their own right. It's even possible they could have a say, more than just a say, in whom they married. 
So in other words, they weren't the playthings of their fathers, their uncles, their sons. They had a certain amount of independence. And if you were an Athenian male, you were pretty shocked, pretty uh, anxious about that. And there's a rather nice uh, anecdote. It's purely made up, probably by an Athenian. Um, an Athenian and a Spartan encounter each other. Let's say it's at Olympia, which is actually where they would quite often meet. In, I mean, relatively friendly rivalry as opposed to on a battlefield. And the um, Spartan is not a fan of democracy. The Athenian is a good democrat. And he asks the Spartans, why is it that we have democracy, which of course empowers all of us to decide our own fate, we have democracy. Why do you not have democracy in Sparta? Spartan replies by not answering the question. He's a very good politician. He says, we will introduce democracy as our political system just as soon as you Athenians introduce democracy into your own homes. In other words, they were raving male chauvinists, which is the case. And legally speaking, an Athenian female was never adult. She was always in law, sub-adult. In other words, had to be spoken for, looked after by uh, her nearest male relative, who was also her guardian. Well, I'm introducing you here, penultimate slide, <coughs> to a very remarkable Spartan woman. She's called Kynisca, which means something like puppy. Um, little bitch, if you see what I mean, in the purely canine sense of bitch. Victorious with a chariot of swift horses, I have erected this statue. Lost, that's the statue base. And she preambles that with kings of Sparta are my father, that's Archidamus II, and brothers, Aegis II, Agesilaus II. I declare myself, uh, she was no shrinking violet, the only woman in all Hellas, that means the Greek world, to have won this crown. And this is actually from Olympia. If you go to the Olympia Museum, you can see this as you enter the wonderful museum. And um, the statue's gone, long since gone. But this is as un-Athenian and undemocratic a document as you could possibly hope for. Likewise, my final image is as undemocratic in a different way as you could possibly uh, hope for. It comes from Ravenna, Italy. It's, of course, representing a Byzantine emperor who was a ruler, an autocratic ruler of a theocracy, early Christian orthodoxy, Catholic orthodoxy. His name is Justinian. And the reason I put him up here is that the word democracy, democratia, still existed in the ancient Greek or early Byzantine world of the 6th century CE or AD. But by this time, the word could be used to mean riot. In other words, anarchy. The exact opposite of what a good law-abiding, let's say law of Eucrates-abiding Athenian democrat of the 5th or 4th century would have recognized. So, to conclude, and we've got about um, 12 minutes or so of discussion time left, 
two, not exactly lessons, but two things I draw from what I've been saying. First, the past, as L.P. Hartley put it in The Go-Between, is a foreign country. Democracy we use, democratia the Greeks used, but they are very different animals. And secondly, second uh, point, the word democratia in antiquity went down and down and down, largely thanks to the Romans and then the Byzantines, who called themselves Romans. They hated the idea that ordinary people could directly determine their political fate in mass meetings and mass juries. Democratia segues from meaning dictatorship of the proletariat to meaning something like republic, that is not monarchical. By the time of Justinian, it means riot. For a thousand years after that, there are, well, no democracies or anything like it anywhere in the world. But 17th century, I mentioned the levelers. The word democracy is used again. It's not yet instantiated. Uh, you have a republic briefly under Cromwell, who thought of becoming a king, and then we move on to our sort of representative democracy. The puzzle, really, for me, given the way in which democracy went down, is the way it's since come up. And I still don't quite know why the word democracy was resurrected and revivified and revalorized, uh, as opposed to what's wrong with republic, as it were, if you don't have the rule of the masses on a day-to-day -day basis, which is what democracy originally was. If you have been, thank you for listening. <laughs> so I'm told there are, there are. I can't, oh, it's now I can see you. Hello, you're there, yeah. There's a gentleman in the front and there's a gentleman over there. Thank you very much, Professor Cartledge. I'm not sure where he falls on your spectrum from Plato to Donald Trump, but Yanis Varoufakis's book, of course, quotes from the Melian Dialogue. And the Athenians in the 5th century BCE were well known for the use of aggression to get their way. But to what extent did they use the attraction of their democratic system as a means of influencing other city-states uh, to come to their side, to come to their support yeah, yeah. in their battle against the Spartans? It's a very good question, and it's an extremely controversial one because our sources, the evidence for the particular period and uh, series of events, uh, are not Democrats, and that's actually the truth about our entirety of our evidence for ancient Athenian democracy, that the evidence mainly comes from its enemies. And uh, I'm not saying that Thucydides, the principal source for the Melian dialogue, he invented that, of course, and for the history of the Peloponnesian War, as it was preserved, it breaks off, of course, he doesn't cover the whole of it. I'm not saying that he was a radical anti-democrat or oligarch, but he certainly was not a democrat. His ideal, 
was a managed democracy of the sort that he hoped would have continued beyond the death of Pericles, but did not. Pericles died from the plague in 49. Thucydides was then about 30. And as he paints it, everything after that went to the bad. And very interestingly, if you read Thucydides' book three, a couple of debates, one in particular, which is about how should we treat a city which has revolted against us, which is not a democracy. In other words, Athens has tolerated it not being a democracy. It's an ally, it's a crucial ally in the war against Sparta. It has taken with it other cities on the island of Lesbos, which is, of course, where all these refugees, or many of them, are now uh, crowding. How should we respond? And the, one of the two main speakers is Cleon, who I tend to think of as the nearest ancient Athenian equivalent of Donald Trump. And he starts out by saying, you Athenians, you're, you're very good at listening. You're no good at doing anything. Come on, you guys. We've allowed this city to be an oligarchy. It's revolted in league with Sparta. There's only one obvious response. Total crushing of it. Well, the first day of the debate, and this is quite interesting, it's one of the few occasions when we know that a single issue occupied more than one day's debating. Of course, it's in high summer. So the day is long. So this is many hours. Anyway, they, on the first day, decided to do what Cleon recommended, which was, on the one hand, of course, send in the gunboats, um, overthrow the regime that's revolted, put down the revolt, replace it with the democracy, confiscate the territory, the land of the people, the rich who had led the revolt, distribute it among the Athenian people, kill many, many of the ringleaders. Uh, overnight, there is a kind of, uh, one can imagine them on the one hand going home, perhaps, telling their wives what they've decided, with the implications for killing of mothers with young children, all that stuff that's brought out. You mentioned the Melian Dialogue. Also in the public taverns, in the city centre, gossip, um, late into the night. Anyway, they decided the decision is made to reconvene the assembly the next day. This is almost unprecedented on the same issue. And the guy who is the most influential on the second day, Thucydides represents it as if it's a single debate with two going head to head, but actually it probably didn't work like that says, look, we've got to be prudent. Most of the masses in all the cities of our empire, whether or not they are in democracies or oligarchies, but as it were, ordinary people support us against Sparta. And for one reason, because Sparta's not democratic. That's not the only reason they support us. There are economic arguments as well as political. What's this reminding of us? The, the referendum? You know, all sorts of emotion. It's not ever a simple question. At any rate, he says it's prudent not to take Cleon's drastically um, rebarbative and revenge line because that's just going to alienate not only the people who are already alienated, the oligarchs, 
the upper classes, who don't like us anyway, but the masses who previously had thought we, the Athenians, discriminate between the masses and the elite in favour of the masses. And yet, now this is, uh, it gives me pause, I have to say. The Athenians moderated their treatment. They put down the revolt. They did confiscate land from the ringleaders. They did redistribute it to the uh, Athenian ordinary uh, people. But they also, according to Thucydides, if his text has been correctly transmitted, put to death some 1,000 of the people of Mytilene. And that strikes me as an awful lot because most Greek cities were quite small. You know, you're talking about five, ten thousand citizens max. Uh, Athens is quite extraordinary, thirty to fifty thousand. Uh, this is a very significant proportion. I suspect not just the ringleaders, in other words. So more concession was made to the Cleonian view. But you see what I mean? That um, nothing is ever quite simple. Thank you. Hello. Sorry. Yeah, far away. Has, uh, I'm up here. Um, <laughs> thank you for that talk. It was really informative. Um, and I was interested to hear you mention Plato's Republic. And it just kind of occurred to me, in what ways um, do you think that this could be applicable or not applicable to today's political system? Because it's obviously not similar, um, but we can still learn a lot from that. Well, yes, except that, um, A, I don't think Plato was, in that work, being deliberately practical. In other words, he was setting out his stall. What is it that politics is about? What should it be about? Who should rule? And on what basis should they rule? And the answer that's given is sort of up in the air. Socrates is made to say something like, well, Let's imagine as a thought experiment that we went this way. However, he couples that, Plato couples that theoretical side, which is, I think, what mattered most to him, with extremely caricatural accounts of actually existing regimes. And he sketches out a downwards trajectory from the nearest to his ideal, which is of intellectual monarchism of some sort through aristocracy, oligarchy, democracy, tyranny. And democracy is the least good or the most bad but one, uh, the worst being tyranny, that's to say the exact opposite for Plato of the all-wise, all-intelligent, single, um, authoritarian, obviously, uh, ruler. So um, the Republic, if you want to look for, um, in the ancient world, a work which sketches out, in fact, in quite a lot of detail, some sort of plan, some sort of blueprint, as opposed to a theoretical discussion and a caricatural denigration of actual situation, you have to look to Plato's Laws, which is uh, a dense, long work of his old age, not perhaps Plato at his crackling best. But interestingly, it culminates in the thought that there should be orthodox beliefs. This is very un-Greek. The Greeks did not have the notion of a right way of thinking about the gods that's exclusive, that if you don't believe it, you're committing heresy. But actually, Plato sketches out a kind of proto-theocracy, and anybody who doesn't believe in or doesn't act as if he believed in the norms and nostrums of the state should be executed.
just simply like that, on the grounds that they're, in effect, atheists. So it's a rather extreme but pragmatic and um, theoretically applicable political program, which uh, the Republic doesn't actually offer you. Yeah, and then if you can get the mic from somewhere. Yeah. Um, uh, Sorry, hang on. Um, uh, that gentleman, is it a gentleman? I can't see. But don't worry. No, please, far <laughs> um, away. I'd like to go back to your slide, which you headed the law of Eucrates. And, right. And um, stated that Eucrates was a genuine chap. Um, doesn't it translate good law? And um, I'm wondering whether that Steely and, and that whole concept was actually somebody's idea of what the good law at this stage should be, and it was just a... Um, not a euphemism. Yeah, but I, a, a I see what you're saying. A, there's nothing odd about the name. Democrates, we know people call the Democrat. Um, this means the good Kratos, the man who exercises Kratos well. It's a thoroughly standard Greek uh, name. Uh, it's nothing in the name that arouses the suspicion. This is purely an ideal notion. The content of the law, remember, it's a specific thing, it's an enactment about what you do if anybody threatens tyranny, what you do to them, what the Areopagus, which is one of the two councils of Athens, may or may not do. It's quite prescriptive, it's quite detailed, very pragmatic. This is a law, it's not a theoretical treatise. Um, it's tricked out with the um, imagery of, as you quite rightly say, a kind of uplift. You've got the goddess representing democracy. Democracy's been sacralized and theocratized, um, made divinized. And Demos is an ideal figure, but this is a standard image. Um, Demos is always a, a mature man, not a young man, and therefore a man of wisdom with a beard that's um, aging somewhat, probably gray if not white, as opposed to black in the full bloom of youth. So I see nothing there to justify the thought that this is anything other than a very pragmatic document of its day, 337, and it's actually early 336. Somebody in the front. We've got zero time remaining. Hello. Um, you mentioned the very different nature of democracies in the ancient and modern world, and you talk about the Republic as a bit of a thought experiment. So how about a thought experiment for today? Ah. Is there anything from the ancient Athenian democracy that you... Any of the mechanisms, if you like, of the ancient Athenian democracy that you think could be usefully or interestingly applied to modern democracy? Thank you very much. One thing I didn't say was that for an ancient Greek democrat, elections, you might think this odd, but we say free and fair elections, that's very democratic, were actually oligarchy. I won't go into why they thought that. The alternative was the lottery. Now, the lottery is democratic because, in principle, any can, anybody can apply, and no one knows whether you're tall, short, beautiful, ugly, rich, poor. You're just a name in a hat, as it were. And the way in which the Athenians allocated all but the very top, most responsible, most tricky offices was through the lottery. I've written a bit on this. And there is today in existence something called the sortition, that's from the Latin, uh, lottery foundation. They're having a discussion in Cambridge as it happens next week. I've written a little blog on this. And somebody's got a book coming out shortly advocating the much wider use of the lottery, not just as we already have it in the jury courts, as you probably know, but also for holding of offices or for the 
convening of a, let's say, um, constitutive um, commission such that any law proposed in Parliament or even passed in Parliament could be sat in judgment upon by a randomly selected group of you and me uh, as a, a commission in existence for, let's say, a year at a time, sort of people's parliament chosen by lot. So that's just one possible example. I know some local health authorities allocate their funds uh, where they see two causes equally deserving. They use the lottery, they just pull uh, one out of the hat, but it could be, I think, much more widely applied. And it is a fundamentally ancient Greek democratic notion. So thank you very much.